What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. My name is Dean Morris, and it is good to be with you. Thanks for tuning into the show today. Flying solo on this intro, my pal Zach, regular co-host, brains, genius behind the pod, is under the weather. So normally we like to record these together and have a hangout, maybe a workout or a run or some sort of thing around our our work of the pod. Um, but alas, I am solo today, missing missing my partner in crime and all things. So sending out all the good vibes to Zach. Get well soon. But hey, um, we have an amazing episode lined up today. And Zach was in fine form for this conversation, as was our wonderful and amazing guest, Joanne MacArthur. We were so fortunate to be able to sit down with her and have this conversation. Um, Joanne is an incredible human being. She is best known as a photojournalist here in Canada, but she's also the humane, a humane educator, an animal rights activist, and an author. And she is well known for her work with We Animals, a project that she and others are spearheading, which is a photography project documenting the human relationship with animals. Through her work at We Animals, Joanne provides photographs and other forms of media, like I say, along her, along other amazing photographers, videographers, and creatives, providing these images to help animals by raising awareness as to what is going on behind the closed doors of our animal agriculture industry, the big slaughterhouses and farms and factory farms and everything that goes into the modern machine of animal products. Joanne and her contemporaries at We Animals um, helps to expose those atrocities. And so it is hard work that she does, but it is good work. And we were grateful to sit down with her and talk about her work at We Animals Media, about the the latest book that she's released, as well as her some of her own story about how you get into this, how do you remain you know, committed to this work, which is so important and yet very hard to do. Um, it was really insightful and eye-opening conversation that we had and we know that you are going to dig it and you are really going to enjoy what uh, Joanne offers. Her energy is great. The stories she tells um, are truly moving and she is someone um, who, as I've said, is doing incredible work in the world for beings that are often voiceless and silenced and and through her work she is bringing those to light and helping us see um, the beauty of these animals, even in the horrific scenes that uh, are captured. So we are in great debt of gratitude to her for the work that she's done. And we know you're going to dig this conversation. We know you're going to love it. Um, so yeah, I guess there's no friendly banter back and forth between me and Zach today, but that's all right. We will just get down to this episode with Joanne MacArthur and before we do, we just want to say thanks to this week's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. We uh, have been on the AG1 bandwagon for a number of months now, and I got to say that I absolutely love it. Since I started taking it, I've noticed really like a cumulative effect. Over time, I've felt more energy in the morning. When I wake up, it's the first thing I do. It's the first thing I think of is mixing up my AG1 in the bottle, just some nice, cold, crisp water with a scoop of the AG1 in there. And knowing, you know, I shake it 
and I just kind of have this like meditative moment as it's all mixing up. I'm just appreciative of all the goodness that is about to enter my body. And honestly, knowing that I start my day, not only with hydration, but with 75 high quality ingredients that are just going to fuel my body and set me up for a great day is just the best feeling, the best way to start your day with those minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics and adaptogens to just help me get started on the right foot. Uh, it's a special blend of ingredients. It supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and even aging, all of the things. And like I say, the cumulative effect of taking it over a few months, I've really, really noticed. It's incredible. I feel great. I feel like, um, you know, vanity. I feel like my skin is better. Like, honestly, I haven't changed anything about any of my skincare routine, which is abysmal at <laughs> to be completely honest. And I feel like my skin is better than it has been. So all the things that AG1 can do for us, even if it's just knowing that you're starting your day on the right foot, it's so easy to do. Literally one scoop, water, shake, drink it and enjoy it. Know you're doing something good for your body right out of the gate of the day. And really, we want to make it easy for you too. And we're grateful that Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash more good. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash more good to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Get on it, friends. I know you're going to love it. All right. Now on to this week's episode. All right. We're so excited to be to be sitting here across uh, across our, our country, Canada, from Vancouver to Toronto, uh, with photographer, uh, journalist, animal activist, Joanne MacArthur. Thank you for joining us, Joanne. Thanks for inviting me. So happy to be here. Now I have to tell you, um, when I started my own uh, journey into veganism, um, I got I got turned on to this this way of of living and and connecting with animals and, and land and ourselves through. Um, my time at Emily Carr, um, I was I was studying painting there, and I took a environmental and animal ethics class, and um, that kind of changed my lens of things. And uh, your book, We Animals, was one of the first books that uh, I bought when I was, um, you know, pursuing uh, learning more, following my curiosities. So, uh, so your work was informative uh, to myself during my my time of transitioning from that uh, traditional lifestyle to, <laughs> to that of one. Uh, uh, people can't see my face, but when you said We Animals was one of those original books for you, my jaw dropped. And yes. it's because, you know, we can track sales of the things we put out into the world, but we don't really know how they're affecting people, how, how people find them. So I just love hearing that this was a, a formative book for you and that it came in part from your studies at Emily Carr and art and so on. Uh, really neat. Who was teaching uh, that animal class at Emily Carr? Um, I think it was uh, Lynn Rischianski. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, no, I mean, no, it wasn't Lynn. It was Carol, um, Carol something. I'm going to, I'll, I'll okay. <laughs> Carol, an Italian name. But I'm blanking right now. Anyways, um, you know, she she was into your work at the time and uh, shared it with a lot of people, uh, a lot of her students. And, you know, that's that's one of the ideas that, you know, we love here on the podcast, these these invisible ripples that we put out to the world. And we don't know the the impact and the effect that they're going to have and the ripples that they will create from there 
Um, you know, you just do these, these things that you believe to be good and you don't always know, you know, you don't get the KPIs, you don't get the, the, uh, the net profit of, you know, <laughs> the, the vegans that you've, uh, you know, inspired or the animals that you've saved. It's, it's a hard, hard number to create. So they're kind of invisible ripples of goodness that, uh, you know, I can tell you firsthand are, are, are creating big waves in the world. So interesting. You, you don't sound like an effective altruist. <laughs> you, <laughs> you sound like you want to look at the nuances beyond data and, mm-hmm. and, you know, we can be into EA and also, you know, the nuances of storytelling. And that's what one of the things we're balancing at We Animals Media. And of course, I'm getting ahead of myself. We can return to this, but it's, you know, using strategy and data to do the most good that we can while remembering that storytelling is something we're very good at and that we do uniquely. And it really reaches people's hearts in a way that can't really be quantifiable. Yes. Yeah. And even the the positive like ripple beyond that is, you know, the influence that your work had on Zach in that class ultimately lead him, led him to adopting, you know, this plant-based lifestyle, creating a business here in Vancouver that has effectively reached and touched like thousands and thousands of people with the message of like, you know, plant-based eating a vegan lifestyle can be, you know, not only the answer for, for your own personal health, but for what's best for the, our collective planet. So it's just cool when you, when you think through, you know, something that you created and then, the, the impact and how you can trace that through is just really neat. And I mean, that's why in many ways we love these conversations and we wanted to have you on is because you never know who's going to listen to this. And then a story, a conversation, an anecdote that you share influences or impacts someone in a way that allows them to go on and create changes in their world, you know, and mm-hmm. then effect. And so it's, it's so cool. I think the importance of story, the importance of documenting the way you do is just brilliant. Oh, thank you. And, uh, you know, about these, again, these things that we can't quantify, part of my journey began with meeting farmed animals who were rescued and who lived at Farm Sanctuary. And I went there uh, wanting to do an internship. It's one month, you know, be with the animals. I was vegetarian. but You have to be vegan there out of respect for the animals during the internship. And I thought, well, that is really extreme. I'm, you know, I'll do it because I have to, but then I'll go back to being vegetarian. And, uh, but of course, after 24 hours of being with animals, I felt intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually aligned, everything was aligned. And I was like, oh, this feels amazing. I guess I'm going to be vegan forever. But on the other hand, I was like, oh, shit, like, seems really hard. I'm going to be ostracized from society. And um, and of course, you know, that was 20 years ago, and everything's been just gorgeous. But um, going back to, you know, what's not quantifiable is that who who's really to say like what kind of careers you're launching when you send people to visit a sanctuary um you know sanctuaries are, are underfunded or you know, maybe not funded by EAs and by the way I love the effective altruism movement but uh I keep bringing it up <laughs> um you know this this topic but I just find it so interesting but on the other hand you know uh that movement doesn't really want to fund sanctuaries um because they're very expensive and they might be low impact. But again, to the point is that you just don't know. And there are a multitude of ways that we can reach people. Uh, 
And um, that's also what I love about the movement right now. It's a really cool place to be, whether you run a sanctuary, whether you're a photojournalist, running a podcast, you're a scientist, you're a lawyer, you're a philanthropist, you're a youth leader, like you can do like whatever you're good at, you can use those things to make the world a better place. And animal law was not a thing a couple decades ago. And, uh, you know, ethology, no one was really into that uh, very much a couple decades ago. So now, now look, like what a cool space. It's a space that's evolving and growing and stretching and challenging itself and being really influential. Oh, I'm so pumped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's, there's room for everyone, like no matter who you are, what your skills are, where, what your background is, you, you can show up and bring, bring yourself to the table in that sense and contribute in a meaningful way, whether it's through, yeah you know, beautiful photojournalism or someone who has a, a, a law degree and wants to work to help, you know, give voice to animals that are often voiceless. And so I think it's, it's such a, it's such a great opportunity and a unique time that we're in now where there's this emergence of this whole new kind of sector where people are starting to pay more and more attention. Yeah. Yes. So if we go back, um, so you're a vegetarian and you decided to, to work or volunteer on this, this farm sanctuary. Um, what inspired, uh, was it a love for animals or, or wanting to spend time, you know, in a, in a simpler way with, with animals and land? Like what, what brought you to that experience that obviously, you know, I, I mentioned your book had great inspiration on, uh, on myself, but you look at this experience on the on your time in the sanctuary and obviously you found your life's purpose and 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 spending time with these animals um what kind of was that catalyst to to sign up for that experience and um from there maybe we can go into to what steps you took from there what was the next step in leaving the what was the next chapter after leaving the, the animal sanctuary well, I was always a lover of animals and a caretaker of animals, be it, you know, the wild animals in the neighborhood or the dog kept in a backyard all winter um, or, you know, being a volunteer caretaker at a local shelter, all these things. But I was still a meat eater. And I think it was when I really became aware of the sentience of all animals, not just sort of those around me that things really started to click. I started to think, I started to understand. And it was because I'd had the opportunity to spend time with chickens. And uh, my mom had 10 layer hens, two dogs, and a cat out at her place in the country. And I spent time with all of them. And they were all similar in terms of, you know, their unique qualities and their complex emotions. And I so I stopped eating chicken because, you know, I was getting to know chickens. And then I started, the more questions I asked and the more answers I found, the more appalled I was about factory farming, mainly. Uh, that was the, the big scandal for me, These this stuff that happens behind closed doors. And, and now my world is about that. It's about going to these places and exposing uh, the treatment of animals on factory farms. It's hard for me to imagine that people don't know, people still don't know what goes on in these places and what it's like. But I mean, that was me 20 years ago. It was a huge surprise. And um, I, you know, started looking into activism and I think I, I really found a home there. All of a sudden, this love for animals that I had became something that was uh, less about me and more about all the others. 
and I could make an impact. And I got really obsessed with, well, what can I do? You know, I can leaflet, I can volunteer at sanctuaries, uh, and I can investigate. And that turned out to be one of my strong suits as a photographer. I was a budding professional photographer obsessed with war photography, conflict photography, street photography. And, um, and I found a home in that work as well. And so lo and behold, I was wonderfully, uh, happily able to combine my loves, which was my love for animals, my concern for animals and my love for photography. And there was plenty of photography uh, in the animal rights space uh, with regards to investigations, but it wasn't, a lot of it wasn't high quality. It was done by activists who had sort of basic cameras or uh, weren't really skilled at using uh, good lighting. And so I saw uh, a need for my professional skills. And so I started volunteering with NGOs globally. I would call people up and say, hey, like, I saw your investigations. Can I come and spend two weeks with you in Australia or Spain or Sweden? And so like all of the money I was making from my commercial work in photography went to pay for the good stuff, as I call it, which was documentary work. So for the first decade, I was, you know, making money to, to pay for that and to to fly and fly around and do work so that I could work for free for NGOs. Um, well, anyway, I think that's that's a little bit of that of that story. Maybe I'll pause there. Sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's so interesting. Like the the kind of journey of having these separate loves and then being able to unite them into one like purpose, really, right? Because you could have explored on the side like activism or you know volunteering for shelters and sanctuaries and stuff like that, and just maintain your professional career. But to really align those three things, was there a moment of intention when when you were like maybe one of those after those first volunteer trips or? Can you kind of look back and say this, this was the moment when I knew, like, I it kind of tipped into being this is what I'm going to kind of create. And this is the mark I'm going to leave on the world is this, this photojournalism exposing, you know, animal agriculture. Well, it would be great if I had a fantastic story about that, like one big aha moment. But, you know, I think it was a series of aha moments. And one of them was when I was hiking in Ecuador, people were crowded around this, this monkey who was chained up along the hike and people were taking pictures because they thought it was cute, funny, silly, whatever. It was really exploitative. And I took a photo because I thought, well, maybe I can do something with this picture that will help the animal. Or maybe at the very least I can document what I see is something really devastating. And I saw that I was an island amongst these people uh, I saw that my opinion and my photograph would be more important to the animal than, you know, their opinions and their photographs. <laughs> and uh, so that was that was one of the moments. And in fact, I um, photographers love, you know, having projects and love having titles for their projects and titles for books and making books. But like a title can be really difficult. Uh, I'll talk about that with our book, Hidden Animals in the Anthropocene. That's our recent book. But with we animals, like I hadn't even thought that I would do a project yet, but I was like, oh, I should do something about that. I'll call it we animals. <laughs> Yay. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, we are we are all animals. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty simple. Yeah. What, one of the things that I, I love about your work and that was really striking to me, um, you know, prior to going vegan, um, I didn't see animals necessarily other than the, the pets that we we had, you know, because um, they were part of the family. I didn't necessarily see 
the cows at the farm or the pigs or the chickens as individuals. I would kind of see them as a, as a group, you know, like them, they, um, the other, you know, and I didn't really see them as, as individual beings and individual conscious sentient beings that, you know, had their own existence. I just grouped them all together. And um, your photos are so striking and beautiful um, <clears throat> that they really showed the individual of these animals from all around the world. Um, can you kind of talk to capturing these these experiences of these these individuals versus like seeing them as as those individuals versus as a group or as another and kind of representing um, this group that didn't have a voice for itself? Hmm. Yes, I can. And I also really liked your lead up to it and your prompt about seeing animals in groups and not not as individuals. And it's one of the reasons that one of the stronger images in We Animals is a close-up of a fish. Mm. And uh, this is a fish who has died, um, but their expression is, is very lively, you know, the wide eyes and the open mouth. And it's a close-up, not even of their whole body, but just their face. And especially fish, we think of them, if they're alive, we think of them in these beautiful shoals in the ocean. Is that the right word? A shoal or a school, a school. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And um, and then when we see them dead, it's often in markets on, you know, rows upon rows of them on ice. And um, and uh, and so we have to pull forward, bring out those individuals who make up those groups and those groups are massive. They they number the billions every single year, which is just hard to hard to imagine. I remember photographing. Um, after Hurricane Florence in North Carolina, 5.5 um, million animals were estimated to have drowned in those floods in the factory farms. But, you know, 5.5 million, that's such a staggering number. But they have millions, millions more uh, pigs alone in that state alone. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it's the same thing with large numbers of people who need help. We can't really feel that. We we don't care as much when it's like these colossal numbers. It's shocking. But then when you see one dead or alive, be it human or non-human, it's really striking. And I'm thinking about the Im image of the young boy, mm -hmm. uh, Island Curdy, who was washed up on the shore. And that really, really rocked the world. It wasn't even a very good picture. It was like a snapshot, a document of a really horrific moment, uh, really drew things home for people. And, you know, it's interesting, you don't even see his face in that picture. And, um, but we do need to show the individuals, we need to show the shocking nature of their lives. And we can put out a lot of photos, and there are now a lot of good photos out there of these animals, but we all have to take great care as photojournalists to, um, bring poignancy to those images, bring eye contact, bring context. My por my pictures aren't just portraits. They often show the context. They show the bars, the cage, the locks, the fences, um, the, the knives, the, the slaughterhouse rooms, and, and all of this. So I would say my most successful images of individuals are, are those that, you know, uh, show a context, show a location, just as that image of that Poor little boy, um, you know, was the context was the shore and the water and like 
Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. It's incredible how how the one can be far more powerful than the many, even though when we when we think about it in terms of, as you had said, numbers in the millions, most people would would gasp and be like, oh, that's like that's terrible. But somehow it feels too big. Like it feels overwhelming to be able to do anything. But when when we're faced with the one image and we can see the expression, the concern, the care, the the value in that life, human or otherwise, then then we can really start to feel the impact of wow, this one, but on mass. And I think that that's that's the power that you you've captured and bring in in all of so, so many of the photos that you you've created and put out in the world for people to to have that connection and have that experience where it's not just uh, what can I do? What can I do about you know five million animals or you know, even more pigs alone in a state, right? That whose fate everybody knows, like they're not there for anything other than to be raised, to be slaughtered, to be used for human consumption. And when we can, when we can almost personalize it, it has a a much more powerful effect for sure. Have you felt, have you felt overwhelmed as someone in in journalism and photojournalism, taking pictures and trying to expose like this almost counter narrative to the dominant narrative of like marketing happy animals on a farm, like grass fed, free range, like the billions of dollars that go into marketing to make us feel better about our choices when when really your photos would show the exact opposite is true. I love that your first question was, are you ever overwhelmed by that? I mean, just the question itself makes my eyes well up and make me makes me want to go, oh, <laughs> just, yes, it's colossally overwhelming. And that's why there's so much burnout in animal activism, because it's slow pro- progress. You're pushing a boulder up a hill. You're up against the dominant ideology and mass media and policy and carelessness. So, um, I mean, I paint a grim picture here, but the fact is that we have a long way to go and um, we don't have a lot of help yet. We need more people of all kinds on board the way more and more people are on board with environmentalism and human rights. It's slow going, but I don't live in that overwhelm. And that's part of why I've been doing this for 20 years and why I've been able to withstand doing investigations for so long. Um, I, you know, confront some of the worst of how we treat others in this world. And it's, it's, it's nothing short of horrific and awful and very painful for me. But I have this one short life that I want to live really happily. And I want to do my best. And I want to live... Um, in service of those who need help, but also in service of myself and my sanity. And uh, and so I have over time learned to cope really well and to live alongside the suffering of the world, not enmeshed in the suffering of the world. And I can hear, I'm hearing myself say that it's a bit of a contradiction because I also need to feel things this really so, because that just gives me fire when I allow myself to bear witness and feel the pain of others really makes me want to work hard and it brings out um, the best in me in some ways like I want to tap into my creative side and my strategic side so that I can I can help 
Um, not not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I think that just listening to you, it sounds like there's there's a a unique like uh, rub of like the resilience of of remaining in these hard and difficult and uncomfortable positions and bearing witness to what to what you're seeing to the point where it there is as you said a lot of burnout and you could you could choose to walk away from it and pursue something that's like less draining and hard on your soul but the reality is is like that that drain and that overwhelm can also be the very thing that that stokes that fire to be like no because because of this reality is like why I need to keep doing this. And, and there's that balance there of, of knowing like you have, you have this purpose and it's bigger. It's bigger than, than just the, the one photo, but it's the stories and the ripple effects that those photos and that photo will tell and the impact it will have on people for who knows how long into the future, right? As long as it exists really. Yeah. Yeah. And the images that I can produce are bigger than the suffering that I will feel producing them. Yes. And um, we, most, many cultures, I will say, are quite afraid of suffering. Uh, some are more embracing of it or aren't so afraid of death and aren't so afraid of suffering. But in some cultures, we do everything to just deny it and to protect ourselves from it. We live in fear of it. But when you inevitably go through terrible things or witness terrible things, um, probably everyone listening has. And if not, well, get ready. Um, mm. We all lose people. We all experience terrible things. Um, you can you can like <laughs> use it to to become wiser, to figure things out, and to not push against it and run away from it. I find that if I'm suffering, well, that's uh, awful, but it's an opportunity for learning and growing as well. Uh, yeah. So yeah, go ahead. I've heard you kind of speak on heartbreak and how, you know, your, your heart is broken time and time again. And, and, you know, how that in some ways is part of your practice and, and what that looks like. Um, and how compassion comes into your space versus empathy. Can you kind of talk about, you know, your experience with your heart breaking over and over, you know, bearing witness to, to this, you know, this mass animal suffering and, and how you bring compassion and healing into that space? Hmm. That's a big one. And in our, a moment ago, I wanted to say about suffering and heartbreak is that we could be more open to it because you will see that you'll mend and be stronger for it. But I guess I can't really say that because not everyone does. Right. So I really have to be, to be mindful, but I do know that, you know, a lot of us go through major heartbreak and then, and we do survive, you know, we, we do live on and we do fix things. And um, so can you go back to your question? <laughs> because I was still sort of in, back in the last, the last bit. <laughs> Yeah, just kind of your experience with, um, you know, and bearing witness to to the suffering, um, you know, experiencing mm -hmm. heartbreak over and over again, and yeah. how compassion and and healing, like how yeah. part of your practice. Mm. Well, empathy, as opposed to sympathy, is something that gets us closer to others and makes many of us want to act more. I mean, it also hurts more, right? Mm -hmm. 
sympathy, sympathy, you can stay at arm's length. Empathy is to be in, in someone else's shoes. And, um, but it's a, it's an enlightening place to be when you open yourself up to it. And, uh, but one must tread carefully, I guess you have to be, you have to be able to extract yourself from that place that you've, that you've put yourself in. And, um, and there are interesting conversations from, by Buddhist philosophers is one I like very much named Mathieu Ricard. And uh, he has several books on happiness and altruism and how to build these things and what to do with these things. And uh, empathy, he really, he really emphasizes that, but also stepping back and having compassion and uh, incorporating compassion into one's life. Um, it's such a, it's such a more fulfilling life when you're uh, wanting to help others. And I'm sort of like speaking in a really basic way here, but I think it's because I'm trying to synthesize something that would cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Um, but about Mathieu Ricard, um, his book, Happiness, I've read it a few times and it's quite dog-eared and underlined. I highly recommend it. Uh, he's he's such a wise and pragmatic soul and funny, uplifting. Um, I'm not sure if you've read any of his books, but anyway. I'm adding them to the list now. Yeah, for sure. And he's also a vegan, and he's also a photographer. Um, he was he was a scientist. I can't remember what kind of scientist, but he left it all to become a Buddhist. And uh, so he speaks really beautifully about Buddhist philosophy. And that is one of my coping mechanisms is, is uh, what I learned from, from Buddhist philosophy and compassion. And in fact, I, um, can I sort of segue? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm holding up, uh, which you can't see me folks, but I'm holding up my book, Hidden Animals in the Anthropocene. Uh, it's my most recent massive body of work, and it's not just my photos. It's the photos of 40 animal photojournalists, and uh, it's a book of war photography, the war against animals, and it's unflinching, and it's doing really well. It, it won some incredible awards, and uh, it shows me that the book was well-timed and the world is ready to accept that these are important issues. And they're buying the book and they're talking about the book. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because there's a particularly violent photograph, one of the most violent photographs in this book. Uh, it's in a Thai slaughterhouse and it's a man clubbing a pig over the head. And it, it's, it's a club and it kind of looks like one of these Fred Flintstone, like old fashioned clubs. And the floor is covered in blood. And uh, there's a man with a knife. Uh, to say the floor is covered in blood is an understatement. It's like we're in a pool of blood and I'm standing there too. And I'm you know up to my ankles and in blood and water. And this pig is on her knees and she's screaming and her eyes are closed. And um, it's there's a lot there. And I wanted some text with the picture. I didn't want another picture next to this picture. I wanted it to stand alone. And I spent, I think, three days in a week, in a long weekend thinking about what would I write, what could I possibly say in addition to this. It it doesn't need, you know, it doesn't need explanation. The image speaks for itself. 
And um, but what I landed on is a, a very short poem, which is actually a prayer by uh, Shanti Deva, who was an eighth century student um, and follower of um, uh, the Buddha. And um, Shanti Deva wrote many books. And this is, uh, you know, eight lines uh, from this prayer. And I'd like to read it to you. And it sums up what, well, obviously what I want to say next to this picture, but it also sums up uh, my, my role in the world and what I'm trying to achieve. It reads, may the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power and may people think of benefiting each other. For as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, until then, may I too remain to dispel the miseries of the world. Hmm. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. What, a, what a juxtaposition next to that image as well. Wow. Yeah, we were talking before the podcast how you know your your work, your images that uh, you create, um, you know, they capture both they're beautiful pictures that capture suffering. They, you know, capture these individuals that don't have a voice, the voiceless. And, and I was thinking about James Nataway's war, war journalism, his war photography and, and how, you know, the power of those images, like um, you're able to communicate a culture, a history, a struggle through these, these images and um, just how important that is. Like, I think if, it's it's one of the only ways we can change is is to witness and we need you know the world's not willing to go to these factory farms to travel the world to see these places of of, of suffering and struggle and and in doing so you know you're you're sharing the history of a whole you know a whole group of of sentient beings that otherwise don't have representation i mean there are other photographers like you mentioned but uh you know, we animals as a whole has kind of created this ecosystem of, of, you know, compassion and truth. And I think this is, this is how we make change in the world. And um, one, I just wanted to acknowledge it and, and to be grateful for, for your work. Um, but it's, I, I think in how you do it and in, in, cre in creating that beauty that captures that struggle and that suffering, allows us to to truly see what's happening it takes that beauty to to allow us into this ugliness in a way you know um because i think we're we can be as, as people scared to go there but when something is as beautiful as these images it's it's like a, a gateway it's an entry point to to see something that is happening so um in a long-winded way um can you talk about kind of that juxtaposition of, of beauty and and suffering and struggle and how the composition um, plays such a big role, like in contrast to someone coming in and taking a photo with their iPhone or are these, you know, how things have been documented in the past, how, how beauty allows for the story to represent its its truth in a way. It's funny because after 
just a moment ago, I thought, oh, I wish I could record this. So good. And it's recorded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we got you. Thank you for speaking so eloquently about uh, your thoughts on what we're doing and what we are doing. And you referred to this as an ecosystem of compassion and truth. And I, I jotted that down. It's just so lovely. I'll, I'll share that with the team. They'd like to know that, you know, we animals media is thought of that way. So thank you. Um, yeah, beautiful images like Noctway's work and so many of the Magnum and seven photographers, those are agencies. Uh, I just worshipped their work and what like the lengths they were going to to capture things that need to be seen, images that change conversations globally. Uh, we we all know I don't need, even need to name these these incredible images that are known globally, um, and um, there's just not enough of that with the animal stories. Mm-hmm. And I had identified that a long time ago. We needed those strong, world changing, conversation changing stories. And so, as with conflict photographers, you photograph the horrors, but you have to do it in a poignant, arresting fashion that will horrify the viewer, but also ask of them to return to the image, to look, to look deeper, to engage, to ask questions. If an image is not well composed, if there's no poignancy to it, then people aren't going to engage. And that's the difference between, you know, average photography and good and great photography. And you can do a lot with cell phones. It's incredible now. Um, But you might have a well-lit picture with your cell phone, but it doesn't mean you've got the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need to go to those moments. That's what animal photojournalists do. We go to all the moments that are out there and capture them. And I guess we're creating moments too, aren't we? We're capturing moments in time for the world to see. And um, unfortunately, it's still dangerous work. As with conflict photography, um, we're going where we're not welcome. We're going where we are in jeopardy. Industries know this, which is why they have ag-gag laws and the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act in, in the U.S., Um, but, uh, these things are a time waster and they're dangerous and they're unfortunate, but they can't stop the number of people who are doing this work now, (laughs) which makes me very happy. Can you share just in case our listeners aren't aren't aware, can you kind of share what the ad gag laws are? What happens if you want to photograph, you know, a farm, what kind of prevents you legally from, from doing so? Yeah, ag gag is, you know, agricultural gags, which stop all sorts of people from sharing information that they capture inside or outside of an industrial farm. Uh, It applies mainly to industrial farms, uh, fur farms as well, um, because there's a lot of whistleblowing and um, there's a lot of documentation now coming out of these places. And so the fines are incredibly steep. Uh, We have them here in Ontario where I live. Um, This was in part because people in the SAVE movement were going to the trucks 
in many places. And I mean, many people in the world are doing this now. We go to the trucks, we see who's inside, we take photos, we publish the photos. And, um, and it's not good. It's not a good look for industry because it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, these ad gag laws, you can get, you can get jail time, you can get fined for $25,000, in some cases, even from taking photos of a farm from public property. Isn't that incredible? It's crazy. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, think about, we've, we've talked about this before, Dean and I, but uh, imagine, you know, you go to um, a raspberry patch or a strawberry patch or an apple orchard and you, you know, go with your kids <laughs> and you take photos of this food that you're harvesting and you know, it's beautiful and happy and, you know, you share it on your Instagram. Um, you know, I, I feel like if you can't do that, then you should be questioning where your food comes from, you know, like yeah. uh, you wouldn't go necessarily to a factory farm with your children and be like, hey, Tommy, like pose next to like a mummy cow over there um, before we, <laughs> you know, take our shank here and bring home dinner, you know, like it would you'd have lifelong trauma for poor little Tommy there um, versus the experience at the strawberry field. Um, yes. So just like to, to have that, that um, intention or awareness of where our food comes from and, and what we can or can't see. Obviously you're exposing what we, we can't see or what they don't want us to see, but mm-hmm. If they're trying to hide things, you know, there there should be concerns of of the whole practice. There should be there should be more people holding up flags. Yes, yes. And you know, there are people who, you know, get jobs at all sorts of animal industries and end up wanting to report Mm. on the conditions, not only for the non-human animals, but the working conditions for humans as well. And and they can't because there are laws that prevent them from, from whistleblowing or doing undercover footage. Um, you can get in a heck of a lot of trouble now for um, doing undercover investigations, like employment-based investigations. Now, a lot of these laws are eventually overturned because they're seen as unconstitutional, but it's a huge waste of resources for lawyers to have to fight that. And mm-hmm. in the meantime, activists, well-meaning activists are, you know, are jailed and facing huge fines. Um, but, you know, we must publicize these these stories as much as possible and publicize ag gag and talk about it because it's completely shameful and embarrassing mm-hmm. and so yes they exist they're a pain in the ass but we can we can expose that too because <laughs> if you flip this and you were exposing you know human suffering human trafficking like if you put humans in the places of these animals you would be celebrated as a hero you you know would be a savior for all of these people um, but instead, you know, the whole industry creates these laws where you, where it makes it very hard to document and witness the, the truth of what's happening. Well, that's a great segue into back into the world of photography yes. where, where, um, competitions are about like the ones that I enter are about wildlife and they're about, uh, the human condition. That's what photojournalism is. It's about the human condition. And, um, you know, I do submit work into wildlife photographer of the year, but it has to be in the photojournalism category and it can't be about domesticated animals because we have these hierarchies. And, um, and as you say, you know, you're lauded for doing humanitarian work, but not with the animal work. And so part of what animal photojournalism is doing is really 
challenging that and pushing the envelope on that and saying, these animals, all animals rather, have a place in in like the history of photography and in in current photography and in mainstream media. And um, it's really cool to see that in Wildlife Photographer of the Year, WPY for short, this uh, a photojournalism section is the one that is having like the most number of entries and it's the most discussed and people are really excited about it. And then World Press, they haven't typically, World Press Photo that is, they haven't typically made room for uh, anything other than some kind of cool wildlife stories. And yet they had me as a jury, uh, jury member a few years ago, and they let us do an Instagram takeover. And we're like, you know, it's going to be about factory farming, right? And they're like, yeah, you know, like they're making room. The photo world is is making room. And we have more and more photographers moving into APJ, animal photojournalism. And so, um, yeah, I think there's just, there's an evolution and APJ is part of that evolution. I'm really proud that we're pushing the envelope there because things, when it, when it was about animal photography, it was wildlife. Like let's get beautiful portraits of wildlife. And then it grew into conservation photography because it was identified that there was a necessity to help animals through these stories. And then APJ, what's different about animal photojournalism is that it includes all animals Mm -hmm. and it acknowledges the overlap of their stories. First of all, it acknowledges their sentience and their worth and that they're deserving of protection and visibility and care, but it also shows that their stories overlap with many of the important stories of our time, be they humanitarian, environmental, you know, pollution, climate change, and, and so on. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a really good reason even just circling back to like, when it, it's like not really a surprise when we look at these, these um, agricultural gag laws and not being allowed or permitted to take photos within a space that is like an industrial farm, because there's an acknowledgement that those photos are powerful, and that the images are likely going to create change in, in a system that the people who are responsible for it don't want don't want change to be created. And um, I just think that like, as, as more and more people, as you'd said, get into uh, APJ, like it's going to continue to tip the system as people take the risks and expose and are able to capture uh, brilliant images that expose these injustices going on. Um, we, we are hopeful that that will continue to change and move the needle towards more people waking up and being like, yo, I don't think I want to participate in this anymore. But as you said, you know, you've been doing this work for about 20 years or so. How have you seen like positive change from when you first started, whether it was trying to get into slaughterhouses to take photos um, or, or first started wanting to, you know, from that, from those sanctuary days saying here, I want to tell these stories of these animals till now, like what are, let's talk about the good news a little bit. Like what are some of the good things that you've seen happen um, as a result of more and more people getting into this type of photojournalism? That's a great direction. That's exactly where I want to go in. And that's because there have been a lot of changes. Um, the quality of investigative work has changed immensely. So it reaches way more people. These stories can no longer be kept out of the media because it's just undeniable that they have relevance in today's world. So we're seeing more stories published. Um, when my agency in New York, they're called Redux, 
when they took me on a decade ago, they were like, yeah, we really like this work. Like no one's going to want it, but you know, we want some of it in our archive (laughs) and it's totally different now. And there's, you know, there's a animal photojournalism agency and that's our agency and it's called We Animals Media. And so who knew that this project that I made up would become something very strategic and um, and that's what we did. So we took a project that was doing well and people wanted, people wanted more of the work. And I said, okay, well, you know, everyone needs access to it. They don't need me to be home in a month so I can get onto my hard drive and pull out a few photos for someone who needs something right away. So we created uh, a free to use uh, stock site. And, um, and that's been great. That's been like, it's a resource for animal adv- advocates globally. And then we had a few more staff and we're telling a lot of stories and we're bringing on videographers and photographers. And just recently, a few years ago, we're like, are we a photo agency? We're kind of acting like a photo agency. We have a stock site. We're giving assignments. There are more photographers. Hmm. And uh, I just love that (sighs) there was no agency that wanted to like take on this thing, take on APJ and do what we're doing. So we're like, Effort, like we're gonna do it ourselves. And we have 94 contributing photographers and videographers. I'm so happy. These are people who are generously, you know, making their work available to the world through our site. And some of the photographers have just a couple images, but some of them have thousands. And I'm really proud to say that this you know project used to be all my work and I think now it's about 48% my work and my numbers keep going lower and lower because we have more and more people it's exactly what we want and uh, these are you know people who are just out there you know doing amazingly strong work which is exactly what is needed it's incredible too it's an absolutely incredible resource like over 19,000 royalty-free images that people can use and look at and help to tell help help to tell the story of of these of these animals and their their plight really and I mean yeah it, it's as 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 you and Zach were riffing on before like using using the beauty to capture the suffering and it allows people we're in a highly visual culture these days to to really linger on shocking or arresting images that that you you want to look away from, but you can't because you see so much of of the depth and the beauty that's that's in these animals, in these beings. And uh, I think it's an incredible resource. And I mean, kudos to you for for creating something kind of just by like again following your vision, following what you're passionate about, following the things you love, um, and allowing more people to see it and have access to it, and of course to contribute to it, which is which is really really cool. <laughs> It's about community. Community is very important and mentoring and being inclusive. And, uh, and uh, so I, you know, I don't see anyone as competition. I see other APJs as people to work with and we can inspire each other. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just super pumped about the direction and the staff. Like we, there's just so many cool people in We Animals who have incredible skills and great ideas. And it's just going much farther than I could ever have have done has photography changed how you see the world like um I I find just uh, uh, like objectively here like if I have a camera like a 
an analog or a digital SLR camera where I'm looking through the lens, I feel like it gives me um, permission to to see or to observe in a different way than I would otherwise interact. I'm really um, aware of my my surroundings. I'm aware of details. Um, I'm aware of I'm I'm seeing the world differently than I would if I put that camera down. Um, have, have you found that with with how you um, how how a camera has been an extension to to your identity in many ways? Mm. I like what you're saying about how you feel when you're with the camera. And I feel much more immersed in the world around me mm. with the camera. So though some people think like, oh, you're kind of hiding behind the camera. Well, you are a little bit, but I get to erase my identity a little bit, you know, and I like that. I like trying to make myself small behind the camera. That's always what I'm trying to do. I'm making eye contact with people and smiling and nodding, but it's all encouraging. Um, you know, I, I ask questions with my eyes. I, I, I use my voice a lot less. I look at them like, is, is this okay? Or I nod at them or I smile at them or, you know, gesture and just make sure that I'm welcome and people can see, they can see that I'm compassionate. They can, you know, I, I make sure they know. <laughs> And, um, and so I'm welcomed into places that you wouldn't be without a camera. I, I have often thought of the camera as my all access passport into the lives of many, many more people than I would otherwise ever get the chance to meet. And by people, I mean, animals too. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I have kind of a fun, fun question. We always love kind of like campfire stories. So if we can like you know, put improv hats on or something like that. Um, imagine like we were, you know, we, we've met soon after your time at the farm sanctuary and we hadn't seen you for, for 20 years, you know, and uh, we got together for a coffee or a smoothie or a tea or a beer or whatever it might be. And, you know, we're sitting around just sharing stories um, of, of everything that you've seen, you've been around the world, uh, you've observed cultures and countries and animals, you know, beyond borders. Are there, are there you know, one or two stories of, of something you've experienced, something you've witnessed that um, you would share in this kind of situation? There's something really great about leaving a factory farm with images you go so far to to get in there you put yourself in danger and you build friendships with people that you're investigating with and you can't help it when you're you become bonded when you're in a situation and that that goes for many situations and I have many stories about many animals around the globe from, you know, the bears and bear bile farms, chimpanzees rescued from research, um, pigs at sanctuaries and pigs not in sanctuaries. And there've been thousands of animals who really affected me. But I guess, you know, in this scenario, what rises to the top is uh, the satisfaction of working hard with people who care about the same thing you do, you know, you have this commonality and you go for it together. And we have that in the world in all sorts of different ways. And mine happened to be investigations. Yeah. 
and uh, putting out images every day with my awesome team. But um, I will say that uh, some of the great satisfactions are like getting out of a horrific place safely. Um, and I think these moments are are so heightened because I've just been around so much suffering and I leave knowing that I can't help those animals. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking to walk away and you're safe, but they're not safe and they're not going to be safe. And yet like I'm carrying these things and my camera, which is like, sometimes I'm, I'm like carrying my camera next to my heart. Like I'm just holding it up here and I'm like, oh my God, these, like these documents that I've just made are, you know, um, they, I aim for them to change the world. And I feel really good about that. And, uh, I was going to say they're my legacy, but that's wrong. Cause I don't care about my legacy. Yeah. Uh, I, I just want these photos to, to be a legacy. I want these photos when I leave a place and I'm so full of emotion and sorrow for these animals, but excitement for what I can do with the images. I just want these images to be uh, everywhere. And I want them to be on the walls of museums, uh, uh, documents of what was and what should never again be, you know, proof, proof that this should never be allowed to happen again. Yeah. How do you, how do you like decide where, where to go and what to shoot? And, you know, like, as you said, you've been all over the world and we know even here in Canada, like not far, not far from where we are in the Vancouver area, there's farms. And, you know, recently there's been some, there's been some high profile um, cases in the media about people who've gone in and, and, and collected images within there. But how do you decide, okay, we're going to go here and, and um, document, like you said, bears in, in, um, yeah. like there's so unfortunately there's so many places you can go how do you narrow it down or what what gets the what gets the green light from you and your team well you can see me laughing and the reason I'm laughing is because I used to just go and do whatever I wanted you know I find out about bear bile farming one day and then I'm saving my money to go to Asia for a few months to you know go document all that stuff and I was just relentless in whatever I felt but now we have a strategic plan and it's my strategic plan. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, we have priority uh, areas, we have priority topics, and that's because we're watching what the animal advocacy movement is doing and what they're needing. And so mm-hmm. based on that, we're doing the work that is the most strategic. But my team laughs at me kind of fairly regularly when I have you know, now I'm the founder with shiny object syndrome. And I'm like, oh, there's this issue. And they're like, yeah, but it's not part of the strategic plan that you made, that we all made. Come on, MacArthur. Oh, really? Okay. No, this is good. This is good. Like keep, keep roping me back in. This is good so that we can do the most good and we'll keep reevaluating that. So all that to say, um, the, the shoot that I do and that we assign to photographers are the, what we, you know, are aiming to have as sorry, are what we see as high priority. Um, so, you know, we saw that there was a lack of good images of fish farming and that more NGOs were finally covering that. And uh, there was a time when it was about hens and cages or, you know, broiler meat chickens and, and so on. So uh, we also have a, a long list of gaps in our stock site. And so we're looking to fill those and assign assign those to photographers so that we have as 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 broad 
an amount of images as, as possible on the stock site. But, um, you know, I used to travel six to eight months a year to shoot, and now I'm home a lot more helping to run the agency, but we have a lot of photographers to assign work to, which is just gorgeous. Yeah, that's a, that's a good problem to have now, right? Yeah. yeah. Could, could you touch on how this is a, a global issue? Um, you know, we, we obviously mentioned you've traveled the world to, to witness and, and experience what's happening. And I think just how we can other animals, we can also other where this is happening. Um, I think, you know, people can think, okay, well, here we have these nice farms and this doesn't happen here. This, those bad things happen in other places. Um, but that's that's not the case. Like, uh, you know, we know that's not the case. You know, there's factory farming here. There's, I think people are shocked to learn there's, you know, horse farms here in Canada. Um, mink farms, all sorts of, I mean, that's, that's changing, thankfully. But can you kind of touch on how um, these atrocities, these, these, the suffering is just as much a North American prob problem as it is a uh, global issue? Well, that's just it. These problems are growing everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Now we have vegetarianism and veganism growing, but we also have meat eating uh, increasing, especially in rising economies. And some of those rising economies have massive populations. And eat meat eating is still a sign of um, better health. If you know you can finally afford meat, um, it's a sign of rising into the middle class, um, sometimes a sign of affluence, depending on the kind of meat and, and so on. So um, what we're seeing, unfortunately, is a continued growth of factory farming globally. And othering is common because it's a defense mechanism in many ways. But um, it's important for we animals media and for me to see a lot of the world and get a big cross-section of what's going on so that we can say we are on the front lines. We have seen, you know, whether we're talking about Zimbabwe or Australia or Sweden, there is factory farming. It's on the rise. Um, it's looking more and more the same, uh, more sheds, more cages, tighter density and, and so on. Um, and it's, it was particularly interesting for me to do a cross-section, shoot a cross-section of factory farming in Sweden, which is known as, you know, one of the best and cleanest and prettiest and most perfect countries in the world. And so Sweden, you would think, oh, like certainly they don't have factory farming there. So it's really important for me to go to places like that and show mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, they have an incredible amount of factory farming and fur farming. And so in Sweden, I've been to almost every kind of industry you can have with regards to the animals we eat and wear, and uh, it's atrocious there. So yeah. uh, it's good for me to have those experiences so that I can speak to them and remind them and remind Canadians. And when Canadians think, oh, we have such a perfect, beautiful country, we don't do bad things. Well, seal clubbing, hello, mm -hmm. and fur farming, hello, and transportation laws, totally antiquated, um, terrible fisheries off our coasts, which are bad for animals and bad for the environment. So, nope, we all, every country has a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a tall, it's a tall order before us for sure to, to right some of the wrongs and to start to, you know, steer towards a more just and equitable world for all, 
all beings. We've we've got our work cut out ahead of us, but in many ways, it's um, people like you that help to help to move the needle and 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 progress that by by doing the work that you're doing and with your um, with your agency sharing it and making it available to more and more people. The hope is that we we will continue to see and and say like, no, this actually this this is not the way we want to participate in the world, and this is not how I want to you know create a future for you know next generations and future generations but instead stand up and and put a stop to these horrific ways of being and living that we don't need like we don't need to do it's just old systems and old paradigms and old ways of thinking yeah that's right there's um and I repeat it often my apologies but Mm -hmm. I just love the motto for Edgar's Mission Sanctuary in Australia and it is if we can live happy, if we could live happy and healthy lives without harming others, why wouldn't we? Mm. And we can, you know, we have the ability, the technology, the drive, maybe not the drive yet, but to do it, we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, great. that's great. Yeah. I think the old adage of like, know better, do better. But I think with your work, it's also see better and, and do better, you know? Mm. Um, you know, you've, you've obviously witnessed so many animals and it's given you purpose and that's uh, rippled into this agency that's, you know, created more and more dominoes. Um, beyond finding compassion and empathy, are there lessons you've learned from, from the animals that you've applied to your, you know, day-to-day living? Hmm. Let me think. Forgiveness is a big one. I've seen animals recover and live into a resilient a resiliency that seems impossible. And I've seen that in chickens and in bears and in my dog who's just getting out of bed. I can hear him downstairs now. Um, yeah, forgiveness. I think it's a really nice thing for us all to continue to practice stepping into yeah that's amazing just kind of reflecting on that thinking about my own experience going to animal sanctuaries you know these are animals that have been treated terribly and brutally and and you know they're fortunate to to still be alive in some ways but they they you come and visit them and they're loving to all of these visitors when they could you know see all all humans as you know pure pure evil or pure destruction um so the fact that they do accept humans into their lives with love and compassion just shows they've embodied forgiveness in a way that uh you know i hope we can we can apply to our own lives as well so yeah thank you for sharing that you're welcome and you know they do see us as the embodiment of destruction and they are afraid of us um, when you meet them in farms. You know, their their eyes are are round with fear when you walk in. And you know that they're wondering, like, what's next? What are you going to do? Mm. And, um, and they have every reason to fear us. And yes, as, as we're saying now, we can really learn from their, their ability to forgive. Like, what a, what a way to live. Mm-hmm. We can, if we could learn that, we'd be far ahead. Oh, yeah, 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 thank you. Uh, one, I've got a few questions and then we can can go to some random fires, rapid fires before we, you know, let you let you uh, have 
the rest of your evening as, as you would. Um, you've brought up effective altruism a few times. Uh, for those that this might be a new term to them if they're not you know, part of that community, can you kind of define what effective altruism is? Oh, well, um, you know, I, I'd love to read an official definition because I don't want to just yeah, yeah. As, yeah. as loosely as I'm about to. I suppose we could look it up and read it like the main sentence off wiki. But I mean, generally, effective altruists and effective, effective altruism is a movement that grew in the, the last decade or so. And it was about figuring out how to do the most good with the resources that we have. There are a lot of philanthropists who um, want to be the most effective with their altruism. And uh, so it turned into a movement that was full of studies and data analysis and uh, heavy questioning about uh, how we give and why we give. And Peter Singer, who is you know, one of the fathers of the movement, um, wrote Animal Liberation. He also is, is a big proponent and maybe one of the founders of effective altruism. I might be wrong on that, but um, I might be right. And um, yeah, he wrote a book along the lines of, you know, how to do the most good. And, uh, and that's great. And it's really, I'm really, really happy that EA calls on us to think critically about our giving and our strategy and um, and how we can make the world better in little and big ways. One of the examples that I remember that really resonates with me is um, you can put a little bit of money into a lot of malaria um, uh, pills or the what are the covers like the mosquito nets, and that can save a lot of lives. Whereas you can put thousands of dollars into sort of bringing someone who's in distress some pleasure for some amount of time to make their life better before they're dying or something like that you know like it feels really good um, to make people happy but is it the best that you can do and so effective altruism calls us to to think critically about that and to give better mm. yeah it's so good it's the invitation to to look deeper yes. right within ourselves and also at our surroundings, which I think is also what you do with your work, is that it's that invitation to to look deeper at the systems that we may participate in or we may be, you know, aware of, but kind of like want to hide our eyes from or don't want to see. But then once we see, it's like, okay, now now that you know, like how can you how can you make the most impact with with that knowledge and with what you're what you're going to do? Your buying power, right? Is as it were, as many of us, if you're if you're not someone who is a philanthropist or can't can't fathom that, just the way we spend our our money on the groceries we buy and the things the causes we support through the grocery store, that's huge. And so yeah, people people that might be their their pathway into to effective altruism is just the choices they make based on the knowledge that they have. It is fantastic that EA is highly focused on animal advocacy. Um, it's it's great that they've identified that this is a, a major need uh, in the world to improve the lives of animals and to improve our lives and to improve the environment mm -hmm. as well, which takes us back to you know veganism and putting an end to factory farming. It's one of the great things that we can work on doing in this world, in our lifetimes and this very minute. And all we need to do is to, you know, buy something else um, and to not, you know, 
not just follow along with the the predominant ideology of carnism, as Melanie Joy calls it. Um, you know, uh, people think veganism is an ideology, but so is carnism. It's just the predominant one, which makes it invisible. And so we must all call on each other to think about that, to identify it, and to change it. Yes, yes. yes. making the invisible visible. That's right. <laughs> Boom. that's what you do (laughs) well for those listening that want to continue this journey um just to give shout out to yourself and others uh, i know you've got a master class where you teach a lot of um photography activism um can you kind of quickly give shout out to some of the resources that are are from yourself and and from others that have inspired you that i you think would be helpful for for those listening Thank you so much for asking that. Uh, I mentor a heck of a lot of people, but it was taking up all my time. And I was being asked the same questions over and over about gear or lighting in harsh conditions, access, coping, all of the same things over and over. And so We Animals Media and I made a masterclass and it's online and it's self-guided It has um, lessons that you can follow around with. It's uh, eight episodes. So just watch it on your own time. And did I say two and a half hours? It's it's two and a half hours material. And it's really inexpensive for how much work we put into it. I think it's like 35 35 or $45. And um, I was also really excited to see how many people were taking it. Uh, It was a bit of a leap of faith, you know, like, is anyone going to buy this? But we've had hundreds and hundreds of people buy it and and follow it and learn from it. So that's a a great resource that continues to give and will continue to add to it. And and then there's the stock site, as you know, it's it's weanimalsmedia.org. So anyone advocating for animals or any media can go and, uh, you know, searchable by keyword. So by all means, go there. And but you're calling on me to think of other resources. What about like if someone's, you know, they just want to watch Netflix, they want to, you know, be passive in their education. Are there any docs that you think are most effective in, in passing this messaging on? Most effective docs. Oh my gosh. Hmm, we might have to skip this question because I'll sort of say the, you know, the usual suspects, seaspiracy and cowspiracy and like what the health and all these things. But I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't really know what's going on. I know that there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of programs coming out, but you know, the ones that I really like are the artistic ones. Maybe I can shout out uh, Gunda. Gunda. Uh, there are no words and it's photographed it's filmed in black and white g-u-n-d-a and it uh, simply follows the life of a pig and her piglets and uh, she's not in a factory farm nevertheless she is you know she is producing animals to be eaten and the end of the film is like nothing I've ever seen and all they did was set up a few cameras around what was happening. And she's not an actor, she's an animal. But all she did was behave as anyone would in a situation like that. And it was recorded. 
Mm. And what you see is shocking in its subtlety and it's undeniable and it's beautiful. There's that word we're using for filming harsh things um, and getting people to engage in them. So yeah, maybe, you know, when it comes to documentaries and films, I'll, I'll shout out Gunda. Okay, amazing, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, we are so grateful to have had you on and to hear your stories and to help uh, elevate your platform and share your message and, and the work that you're doing. We're just, we're so grateful to you and and the commitment you you made to marry your passions and your loves all together to create this uh, <laughs> this almost accidental agency that is now making waves and is a bit of a disruptor in, in the world in the most positive sense of that word. And so thank you uh, for all that you do. And thank you for taking time to, to be with us here today. Um, we love to end our podcast with a question. I feel like we were we were circling around maybe an answer to this already, but I'll ask it anyway. Each uh, each guest we ask it, and it's, it has to do with the name of our podcast, which is a little more good. We came up with it because that's what we want to see and do in the world. Perhaps we are uh, a little bit of uh, effective altruists ourselves, but um, we love to know from our guests like what does that phrase mean to you? How does it resonate? What comes what comes to mind when you when you think of that phrase? A little more good. Hmm. A little more good means if you're stopping to examine something you may or may not want to act on, just act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so easy to walk by, whether it's someone who needs help or like, you know, buying that piece of meat in the grocery store. Like if you're pausing and you're noticing, like just take part in the better decision and call on your higher self. It can be little things every day, or it could be really big things, but you know, your higher self is there guiding you towards a kinder decision. So pay close attention to that. That's awesome. What a good, what a good invitation for all of us. Thank you. Thanks for asking. <laughs> well, thank you, Joanne. Uh, again, just to echo Dean, we're so grateful for, for the space you hold, for the work you create, um, for, for what you put out to the world and um, you know, we mentioned these waves and these ripples that you're creating, they're going far and wide. And, uh, you know, Dean often says waves never die. So I think your, your legacy is one that will, will go on time. That'll be a timeless uh, experience of, of telling the truth. So thank you. Thank you for myself, from the animals, from, from all of that, uh, for all of us that um, are able to benefit from, from the work you do. Thank you for sharing my stories and the stories of animals and what we're doing at, at We Animals. We're certainly trying to have, create waves. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks, guys. Okay, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Like I say, very, very grateful for the work that Joanne MacArthur's doing for her and the team at We Animals Media, really creating that ecosystem of good, um, which is what we're all about here at A Little More Good. And so we're grateful to her and really grateful to all of you. If you made it this far, thank you for listening through. Um, thank you for supporting the show. Many people ask, hey, we like what you guys are doing. How can we support? Honestly, like the podcast wherever you listen to it. Leave us a review. We really appreciate that. And that really helps in the algorithm just spreading the goodness, doing a little more good. Just leave that review. Uh, tell us what you liked about it. Tell us your favorite episode. Tell us your favorite 
food, anything. Just tell us something. We appreciate it. And um, obviously, encourage you to check out Athletic Greens AG1. It is incredible. Use the code a little more good, or uh, excuse me, athleticgreens.com slash a little more good to get yourself hooked up with the special offer that we have through them. And just tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to spread the pod. Tell a friend about the episode you listened to, the episode you liked, or tell them to check it out. Give us a follow on social media. All the things, we appreciate it. We appreciate each and every one of you. We know that time is our greatest commodity. And by listening to the podcast, you are giving generously of yourself and your time and your attention. And we love that. And we want to continue to create meaningful content that spreads a little more good throughout your life, the life of the people around you, and as far as we can carry this message. So thank you for your support. Thank you for helping us do the work we do. We much, much, much appreciate each and every one of you. All right. Well, that's it. That, that rounds it up for this week. Nothing but gratitude and love and respect to you all. Stay good out there. Peace.